Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. Larry McMurtry, the regional novelist who became an iconic American literary figure, died of congestive heart failure at the age of 84 on March 25, 2021. The author of such classic novels as Lonesome Dove, which won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, The Last Picture Show, Terms of Endearment, and Desert Rose, he also wrote over 30 screenplays, many of them in collaboration with Diana Osana, with whom he lived for several decades. Rarely one to go on a book tour, Larry McMurtry, along with Diana Osana, showed up at the KPFA studios to publicize the collaborative novel Pretty Boy Floyd, and it was there on October 13, 1994, that Richard A. Lupoff and I had a chance to talk with both of them about their book and with Larry McMurtry about his career. Pretty Boy Floyd, this is a collaboration, and it began as a screenplay. Diana, what happened? How did it all arise? Well, Larry was contacted by Warner Brothers initially to do a script about Pretty Boy Floyd and was not interested at first. He was recovering from uh, quadruple bypass surgery and had turned down several offers of movie scripts. And I had become a little frustrated with his turning down these offers and decided to do a little research about the subject myself to see if there was anything of interest about this subject that would uh, would spark Larry. And as it turned out, it sparked both of us. We came away from, from our research with about 12 pages of notes, submitted it to Warner Brothers, and they were eager to have us write the script. We began to write the script. The script, as you know, is a very condensed form, didn't allow our imaginations to sort of fulfill their, their uh, imaginings. And uh, we finished the script and just galloped right into the novel. What happened to the script? Is it still out there waiting to be produced? Yes, Warner Brothers still has the script. The producers have now read the book and would like us to re-script the script with some of the book in it. Your background, what what is that? Have you written other screenplays before? Well, I've written now with Larry. I've written uh, three screenplays and a teleplay and this novel. We've written together a screenplay for Universal Studios called The Standoff, which is an, an adaptation of, a, of someone else's novel. We've written Pretty Boy Floyd. We've just finished a rough draft of, if you can believe this, a screenplay for a feature film version of Father Knows Best brought into the 90s. <laughs> and uh, I know that's the response everybody gives. <laughs> And uh, would, you, would you have Robert Young in it with a ca- doing oh a cameo? Oh my lord, we have no idea. Maybe like he'd to. like to. Would he he would like people. to. He would like to. And we just finished the teleplay of Streets of Laredo for CBS. Is that going to be uh, a miniseries? Yes, starts uh, in January. That's very curious because, of course, Return to Lonesome Dove picks up where the movie Lonesome Dove left off, but Streets of Laredo, when it picks up some many of the characters who are in Return to Lonesome Dove are dead. Uh, what's going on there? Oh, there's also a television series. Neither the, the, the Return to Lonesome Dove and the television series, Larry has nothing to do with either one. Think of it as uh, an American version of the Arthurian legends. It's overflowed single ownership. It's overflowed uh, the bounds of a normal book and a normal film development and stuff like that. It's out loose in the in, in the national psyche in some way. Does this mean that uh, Streets of Laredo is kind of like an alternate universe sequel? <laughs> well, they had the right. People who produced Lonesome Dove, of course, had the right to make a sequel. They made a sequel. My only uh, involvement with it was as a script consultant. Uh, they made a sequel. The first draft of that sequel was uh, a sort of a Liberty Valance-like story in which Captain Carl becomes a senator and marries Clara. 
I thought that was not wise. And so I talked them out of that and they put in a massacre instead, which I thought was more in keeping with the spirit of the story rather than having Captain Carl become a senator. And then somehow the series, which we have not seen even the frame of and have nor a script, and we know nothing about it, it's filmed in Canada, largely with Canadian actors. Is going to appear on your TV screens any moment, I think. Maybe they've already started I think started they brought Newt back to life, and Newt is now involved in some sort of romantic triangle. Streets of Laredo, Newt will again be dead, though. He'll be dead. And when it opens. He, he's, he, he is dead. In fact, lots of talk on this tour about why Newt, Newt is dead. The only answer is that he got killed by a horse. You know, he got on a horse he couldn't handle and it killed him, which happens every day to cowboys in the West. But of course, when you have a character who appears to be the logical successor to your heroes of your previous book, it, it, it does seem a little strange going into a sequel, having him already dead in an accident. He wasn't the logical successor. Now, he he was finished at the end of Lonesome Dove when his father failed to acknowledge him, symbolically, so far as I'm concerned. I mean, I didn't plan his death. I, I, I don't, I, I'm frequently asked why I kill people. I don't kill people. I write a story. Uh, you know, life is filled with sudden death. It happens very often in our country, in the West, in the world. You get on, you know, get up one morning and get run over. Uh, you know, a horse falls over on you. Somebody shoots you. Uh, things like that just occur. I don't think of it architectonically. You know, I'm not looking very far ahead. I'm I'm following the narrative from day to day, and in this narrative, Newt, who was a who was a desperately wounded young man emotionally at the end of Lonesome Dove, gets killed by a horse. It's as simple as that. Is is that similar, say, to the way Emma dies at the end of Terms of Endearment? Just kind of happens. Well, yeah, she got cancer and died. Sometimes young mothers get cancer and die. <laughs> I don't feel responsible for this. You know, if I'm a realistic novelist, I, to leave death out of all these stories would be very, very unrealistic. And in fact, as we all know, some of the people that are nearest and dearest to us, our mothers, our parents, our wives, our girlfriends, our lovers, our best friends, sicken and die. That's simply... You you were referring to Lonesome Dove sort of escaping its pen and 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 just running rampant through American culture. Um, well, it obviously has. Well, um, <laughs> but but it it strikes me that the Lonesome Dove was perhaps the the ultimate and perfect distillation of a story that's that was already in American culture. Uh, the 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 great. Uh, cattle drive of the 19th century is is one of our our archetypal images. It's it's been around. I mean, everybody, every American kid, at least of your generation and mine, grew up on Saturday matinees about this. Well, yeah, but I would draw a little bit of a distinction. The cattle drive, indeed, is a is is a mythic thing. It has not been treated in fiction to any extent. It's been treated only briefly in three or four good books in autobiography, Andy Adams and Teddy Blue and Charles Goodnight. But it has been treated a lot on the screen uh, in, in a couple of uh, classic movies, particularly The Long Trail, which was John Ford's silent movie dealing with the cattle drives, and, of course, in Red River. Uh, those, are the, those are the two major cattle drive movies before Lonesome Dove. You have to consider that there are two archetypes in Western, in the, in, in, in the, in the, the imaginative literature uh, or cinema of the American West. There's the cowboy and there's the gunfighter. Overall, the gunfighter has dominated. First place, it's closer to us in time. It lasted longer. The cattle drives were a very brief phenomenon. They occurred because, there was, because the railroads weren't there yet. They lasted one generation. But out of that one generation came the myth of the cowboy. Now, succeeding the myth of the cowboy was the myth of the gunfighter because of, because the cowboy operated in a frontier situation in which there was a, a lot of violence. Movie by movie, there's probably a thousand more gunfighter movies than there are trail-driving movies. There are only three or four good trail-driving movies. Uh, you, you have dealt with this kind of material re repeatedly 
Uh, I'm thinking in particular of a book called Anything for Billy, which is a sort of wonderful bunking, debunking of um, uh, pop culture, pop literature, and the reality of the West. Well, Anything for Billy is simply a parody of a dime novel. Now, it's unfortunate in a way that I did that because nobody in modern times has ever read a dime novel. They read pulp versions of dime novels. Louis L'Amour was a dime novelist, basically, and so he's and Ernest Haycox and, and the Western writers of the 30s and 40s, Max Brand, uh, uh, Frederick Faust was his real name. I wrote a parody of a dime novel. It's a slight thing, so far as I'm concerned. It was fun to do. It's fun to do a parody, but it's also limited. Do you see yourself as, as a Western writer, in quotation marks, a, a Western writer? No, I'm a writer who grew up in the West. I'm not a writer of Westerns not in, the, in, the, in the commonly understood sense of the term. Understand, understand. Although I did win the Spur Award from the Western Writers of America. It was my most dangerous award because while I was holding the spur up to be photographed, it fell off its plaque and stuck in my leg. And, and there is a lot of violence, of course, in the new book, Pretty Boy Floyd. Again, there are certain American archetypes, the... The uh, the bandit or outlaw figure of the 20th century, is he um, the natural successor, the apostolic successor to the gunfighter of the 19th century? I suppose so, but that not, that wasn't something that we had considered when we set out to write this. You know, we didn't think of that consciously. We just found the story, Charlie's particular story, very interesting. We think of it as a domestic story, I think. In, in looking over your entire career, Larry McMurtry, and comparing it to Pretty Boy Floyd, before we went on the air, you admitted that, that this book came about because someone approached you and it holds pretty close to the facts. Yet it seems that many of the themes, the relationship of myth and reality, the decline of the West, uh, initiation into manhood, all pop up again, and isolation, all themes from all of your novels, all pop up in this in very, very strong doses. It, it, almost as if it's a natural for you anyway. Well, I think what pops up, uh, you know, Diana and I have talked about this quite a bit on our book tour, is the region. I mean, the region and the times and the tone of life, the styles of life that, that existed in the Midwest. This is a Midwestern story. The Last Picture Show is a Midwestern story. It's not a Western story. It's small-town Midwest, and that's what we have in common as writers and as people. That's what we think made us qualified to write the story because we didn't have to research the way people live in the, in the small-town Midwest. Also, what Larry said earlier about being a realistic writer, I think that the things, all of the things that you just said are probably true, but those are things for the reader to think about. We don't think about those when we're writing. We're writing a story. We're writing about characters that are, even though we have fictionalized them, they're just as real to us as real people. And Lonesome Dove 2 came about because of a film assignment, you know. It was written in 1971, a version of it, for John Wayne, James Stewart, and Henry Fonda, just as a movie assignment. Now, it wasn't a trail-driving story at that time, but it was a story about three guys who, were having, who had grown up together in the golden days of the, of the Great West who were having a last adventure. What was common to the two projects is the last adventure, not the cattle drive necessarily. They were Texas Rangers who were getting up in years and they they tried something that didn't work. It wasn't a trail drive, but it was an adventure. But I what I what I want the point I want to make, I think, is that out of sheer accident, the fact that someone in Hollywood calls you up and asks you to write a screenplay about Pretty Boy Floyd or about Three Texas Rangers or just a movie for John Wayne and James Stewart and Henry Fonda or just a movie for Brad Pitt or Tom Cruise. Because if you're, you know, if as a serious writer, you have certain concerns that do persist uh, in, in your fiction. Uh, you take this assignment and you carry it back to where you want it and then you go forward with it. But you wouldn't do that if it was. It, it didn't start with me. It started with them. It didn't start with us. It started with them. Life is a you know life is a serendipitous thing. I mean things, 
you know, things come your way and you either take the opportunity or you don't. It's, you know, you make choices or you don't make them. It's, there's just no grand plan. But it wouldn't have occurred to us to write that story. But once it, once it was presented to us and offered it to us, we found, we think, something genuine in it that worked for us. There's one thing that particularly struck me in terms of the the texture and content of the of the prose of Pretty Boy Floyd, completely aside from the from the story, and that is the the dialogue of the period, the to us in 1994 uh, obsolescent expressions. It's not like reading Chaucer where you're saying, "What does mm -hmm. this mean?" Everything is quite clear, but it's not the way people speak today. Not in Berkeley. They speak that way in Missouri. I have relatives that still speak this way. Now, my, my granny doesn't use the word fliver because we wouldn't have a clue what it meant. But nonetheless, the style of speaking is, is, is common among, among my family. And actually, you can go right down into South St. Louis and probably find lots of folks that's t that talk just like this. You are right under the University of California at Berkeley, and you're out of touch with common dialogue in Salisaw, Oklahoma. Or even in Archer City, <laughs> or Texas. Even in Archer City, Texas. Let me say one more thing about that. We did do a little bit of looking in the gangster films of the time for particular expressions. Per yeah, little, little expressions that there are some of in the book. Did, but did you, pardon me, did, did you come across any particular one uh, that you could recall? I, I'm very curious about uh, this. Expressions? For, yes, and that you could recall. Oh, course. sure. There are some where uh, I think Charlie calls Ricchetti a trigger-happy torpedo. At some point, and torpedo is torpedo right. was the key word in that. Trigger happy was my addition. Public enemy, or right, and 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 Charlie says, "Get me," or you know, "Get, get me. me." In other words, you understand what I'm saying? Yes, that kind of thing. The expression "slap him silly." Oh, that's my expression. Oh, <laughs> I'd like to slap a lot of people silly head <laughs> five or six times a day. <laughs> um, there are uh, any number of real people in in the book. Of course, in addition to uh, uh, Charlie Floyd himself, J. Edgar Hoover, of course, is a fascinating, fascinating figure on the stage of the 20th century. The way his image has evolved over the years, both before and since his death. What are your feelings about Hoover? He was a horrible man, very, very horrible man. I saw him once. I never actually spoke to him, but I did see him sitting in a limousine with Richard Nixon at some point when I first came to Washington. And uh, and I, I work in my my Cadillac Jack trade, uh, being an auction scout, right under the edifice that was built to him, one of the ugliest public buildings in the world, only equaled by public buildings built by Saddam Hussein in Iran. Uh, he was a dreadful man, but he wasn't a stupid man. And the invention of the public enemies list as a publicity tool and as a fundraising tool, which was one of the things that led to the downfall of Charles Arthur Floyd, who after all was just a country bank robber, robbing little banks in Oklahoma and Missouri mostly, was very clever. Uh, you also go somewhat into the relationship between Melvin Purvis and J. Edgar Hoover. Well, it was well known that the director didn't want anyone getting better headlines than he got. And uh, how long was it that Purvis was there after? after he was only—I think Purvis was only there between uh, eight and ten months after Charlie was was killed. And uh, you know, Hoover was—I uh, think—a horrible man, but it, like a lot of horrible people, fascinating at the same time. And one of the most fascinating things to me was the length of time that he was in power in this country. He was in power longer than anybody oh in the 20th century, and I, I think there will never be another person quite like that. We, we won't see him, at least. No, because he created, you know, he created uh, an institution in his own image, and he controlled it for a very, very, very long time. But, of course, Melvin Purvis was there at the right time in a way, but the wrong time in a way, because the whole generation of outlaws were wiped out within seven-month period, from Bonnie and Clyde, Dillinger, Pretty Boy, Babyface Nelson, and the Barkers, all between May of, of May of 34 and January of 35. And uh, he got too much attention. Purvis was... Uh um, I think he went on to be the spokesperson for Post Toasties <laughs> cereal and wound up, I think, about 30 years later committing suicide. 
There's a wonderful, wonderful piece of humorous byplay in Pretty Boy Floyd uh, concerning Purvis's uh, panic lest he be photographed without a fedora because the chief, uh, the director, right, always referred to as almost like mm -hmm. mein Fuhrer, <laughs> right. the director only wants us to be photographed wearing a fedora. Is this historically accurate? Yeah, it is. J. Edgar Hoover created an image of the G-Man. Uh, he definitely, it was, it was thought out. It was not casual. Uh, it was, it continues to this day. The children of Hoover, the, you know, the children of the director are still there, the FBI. I mean, I, I witnessed a wonderful a bit of comic byplay in my book bookshop in Washington when I had to report some books that were stolen from a, from the Smithsonian Institute between an old generation Hoover type FBI man who was at that time running security for the Smithsonian and a young blue jean clad, long haired, very flashy, high top boots, young lady FBI person from a new era, and the clash of styles was was extremely sharp. Richard Walensky. J. Edgar Hoover attempted to create a myth for himself, which he apparently, since his death, certainly never achieved. I mean, we look upon him uh, as a somewhat ghastly figure. I mean, even people who admired him in his life. Well, I images of him dancing in a ball gown certainly don't go with uh, the G-Man. Uh, and an ugly ball gown, too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Pretty Boy Floyd, of course, uh, never tried to do anything to become a myth. I've noticed, again, myth versus reality. You can't actually create a myth for yourself, or can you? It's actually that you can't get rid of a myth. It's more like you can't avoid the myth being created. I think Larry himself will tell you that when he wrote Lonesome Dove, he fully intended to write a demythicizing Western, and the public took it and mythicized it anyway. See, we think what we've done in Pretty Boy is show the is show the dark side of of a criminal's life. Uh, he was neither Charlie Floyd was neither all good nor all bad. A lot of this book is taken up with the pain that his actions caused his family, simply the people that were closest to him. Uh, we don't think it's a glamorized picture of an outlaw at all. We show how sad his wife was, how sad his mother was, how sad his brother was, his girlfriend, all the people that truly cared about him and were loyal to him. And yet I did a lot of that in Lonesome Dove, too. You know, it's a violent, violent book. People get killed, people get trashed, uh, people suffer. And yet it's it's taken as myth. It doesn't demythicize the American West. It reinforces the myth. And I don't know. I'm, I'm still reflecting on that one. I don't know how you I don't know what you do about that. I know we've both talked about that quite a bit. We've we've been surprised at at some of the response to the book, although we've had a lot of mostly favorable response saying that uh, it was reinforcing a myth when it was a, an un, unintentional thing. I mean, if anything, we were trying to simplify the story, to present a story that was more realistic, that gave you the big picture, the context. But within reading the book, we see as the book progresses, at the beginning, Charlie was just a dumb hick who wound up getting into trouble. By the end, whether he wants to or not, at least this is my reading, he becomes the great gentleman bandit that the myth says he is. That's true. Perhaps Dr. Jung was right. Perhaps their archetypes so powerful uh, that, you, that you, if you go near them, they suck you in to some extent. Bandits are romanticized. Robin Hood, you know, in, in many, many cultures, not just in American popular culture, are they romanticized. In European popular culture, they're romanticized. In Asian popular culture, they're romanticized. In South American popular culture, they're romanticized. If you go near a bandit, you practically can't avoid some sense of, rom of the romantic. How close is the story of Pretty Boy Floyd here that you present with the real story, uh, particularly towards the end of his life. How close is that? And, and where did you go off in your own fictional world? We feel that it, factually it's, it's very accurate. We played with the facts in very minor cases. For example, at the beginning of the book, the robbery at the Kroger Bakery, there were five people that committed the robbery rather than two. In one particular uh, place that is, is major, but for dramatic effect, when Birdwell robs the bank in Bowley and is killed, 
Charlie was not present in real life. He was smart enough to realize that this is a place he should not go. But we had him there for dramatic effect. The other area that, that is, is major but is, is important is that at the end of Charlie's life, the last few years of his life, Charlie was basically in hiding. He committed robberies very sporadically, mainly to sustain a life. And we telescoped that at the end of the book. We, we did that for dramatic effect. We took years and turned them into months. Other than that, the, particularly at the end, it's fairly accurate. Ma Ash, Lulu, is a fascinating character, a, a madam housekeeper with a, an interesting past. Is she real? There was a Maesh. She was in Kansas City, though, wasn't she, Larry? She was in Kansas City rather than St. Louis. We didn't know much about her, but her sort of background was made up. That's, fiction. That's something I fictionalized early on, and then we kind of we liked her, so we ran, you know. But she had two sons who were killed in a gangland fashion, and Charlie got the blame part, although it's very, very, very unlikely that he had anything to do with it. And it's true that one of her sons was initially involved with Beulah Baird, who became Charlie's girlfriend. Those things are true. Those things are true. One more character, speaking of Ma Ash, a character I think at least has the best name I have read in the <laughs> past 40 or 50 years is Whizbang Red. Is she based on a real person? She's real. She's real. That's a real name. Of course, what the process of fiction does is all we had of Whizbang Red is the name. The name. And, that's and, it. And, and we knew that she was a whore. And so we invented her. We don't know much about her. Nobody knows much about her. She was an oil field whore that's now lost underneath the sands of time. Charlie and Ruby's son, Dempsey Floyd, was he real? Yes, he's still alive, he's we still think. Alive. And we think he lives somewhere in California. He lives in Southern California, we believe. We believe he's still alive. That's the thing we, we're not sure about. We do know he lives in California, but we're not sure be if he's about still 70. alive. There's a good biography by a, an Oklahoma journalist named Michael Wallace, W-A-L-L-I-S. And I would say that we, because Charlie does have relatives that still live, and probably in all probability his son, Dempsey, is still alive, we try to be respectful of that fact. We haven't been casual, although we will change things when we need to. For the sake of fiction, we don't think we've changed the characters very much, only, only incidental facts. Well, in fact, I was very, very taken with the domestic scenes of Charlie and Ruby and Dempsey. It struck me that what pretty boy Floyd wanted above all was just to have a warm, loving home, and it was the one thing that he could not have. Was this the intention of the book? Uh, I think that that was probably Charlie's belief, and you know, that goes back to, to something that, that Larry and I have talked about just recently, too, about universal themes in fiction and i think one of the one of the universal themes in fiction that we touch in this book is the relentlessness of life you know we make choices we take paths in our lives that are certain only half chosen or not really chosen consciously at all and you'll be one person if you take one path and you can be another person if you take another path and, you know, this involves to some extent the issue of free will. I personally believe that, that free will is an illusion, that it only operates in a very small area, and that people, including us in this booth, can really, you know, if we were asked to explain how we got to exactly where we are at this point in time, uh, would be hard-pressed to explain how. I, for one, certainly would be hard-pressed to say. And that's what it's like to be human. Uh, there's another point very near the end of the book. It's a sort of a meditation by Ruby, Mrs. Floyd, uh, in, in which she thinks that Charlie Floyd, there are really two Charlie Floyds, uh, the wonderful loving husband and father and the wild living bandit, and if only the one could melt into the other. Uh, is this your feeling about, about Charlie Floyd as well? Yes. And mine too. You know, there are, we think what we've, we've tried to do here is examine in a dramatic way, in a novelistic way, the irreconcilable elements of personality uh, within one person or within one family or within one, within one time and within one place. You know, he had both sides. We're not saying he was all good. He did bad things. He, he was not 
by nature a killer, but he did put himself in situations in which it was kill or be killed, and in those situations he killed, he survived. He did have a, a, a real domestic side, and he, he had the capacity to be very happy in, domest in his domestic relations. He was very happy with his wife and child when he was with them. He also had the rake and the rambler, uh, you know, he, uh, and so life evolved which soon got beyond his control he and that's did. what that's what we mean about life being relentless you know you you have to get up every day and function whatever your, that day happens to be whether it's away from your family off trying to have a life as a fugitive or hiding out with your family trying to be in a, a family situation this is what you know one of the dilemmas charlie had and i think very often both charlie and ruby wondered how did we get to this place what happened why can't it be different and they you know they could look back and say well you know, they might be able to say, well, it was when you robbed that bakery at, at Kroger that it happened. But on the other hand, you say, well, I, I did my, I paid for my crime. I came out of jail. I tried to go straight, but life would not let him do that. And, you know, towards the end of the book, when, when you talk about how it, it almost seems as if Charlie's life has become a runaway train. He can't slow it down. He can't stop it. And yet he sees the inevit inevitability of the fact that he's going to die soon. You know, he can't stop that. And and at one point in, in, in the story, very close to the end, you see where the myth that has become Pretty Boy Floyd overtakes the man. And it's a very sad thing. This book, Pretty Boy Floyd, it strikes me as a reader as being a profoundly sad story about a profoundly sad man living in a very hard time and place. And yet there are moments of, of almost hysteric, manic funniness to it, uh, one of which is the first encounter between Charlie Floyd and Birdwell. Was it, is that authentic? We made that up. Oh, you did. I'm, I'm half pleased <laughs> and half disappointed to hear that. But would you talk about that scene a little bit anyway? I thought it was just, just spectacular. The scene where they try to rob, this is the scene which occurs in a bank in Earlsboro, Oklahoma. Yes. Where uh, two bandits, George Birdwell and Charlie Floyd, arrive at the same moment to rob the same bank. I think this has occurred in the history of bank robbing. It didn't occur to Charles Arthur Floyd and George Birdwell, but we, we, we picked it up from some anecdotal source at some point, and we invented it. And we invented We put them together. What a, what a great way for two outlaws to become sidekicks was to try to rob the same bank at the same time. I'd like to say something to the comment about it being sad. I want to point to a couple of what, what we think are literary antecedents, uh, our, our fathers in this enterprise in a way, and that a couple of other, other fine Midwestern writers, Theodore Dreiser and Sherwood Anderson, whose works have the same kind of sadness uh, the sadness of, of sort of lonely people in these isolated little towns in the, in the vastness of the Midwest, and particular to Dreiser, particularly to Dreiser, who's who's meant a whole lot to me as a writer, and I think in Dreiser, in books like Sister Carrie and uh, and an American uh, an American tragedy, you get the sense that Diana has talked about of you take one step too far and you can never get back. Now this doesn't have to be always set in the context of crime. It doesn't have to be the man robbing the safe because the safe door swings shut and Sister Carrie. It doesn't have to be the girl, the pregnant girl getting drowned in an American tragedy. But there is an inevitability that catches all of us, not just criminals, you know. We all of us, most of us at one point or another will ask, how did we get here? What, why didn't I turn left instead of turning right? Why didn't I let that girl go by or that guy go by or something like that? There are moments in life that just take you a little too far and how you get back is a haunting question. And it's a very good question for fiction writers to, to probe. Maybe everybody in the world has moments. Moments like that. Uh, another, another author I'd like you to comment on who's in a sense just whole galaxies away from the people we Sherwood Anderson and Theodore Dreiser and Larry McMurtry. And in another way, I think there's a strange relevance, and that is Jim Thompson. 
Well, I can't say much because I've never read a book by Jim Thompson. I've read most of his books. Do you see uh, what I'm shooting for, particularly his books like Roughneck? His books have some very dark comic aspects, and they're also realistic. And I think they're very realistic. I see what you're saying. Mm-hmm. I think ours are treated actually in in a more human fashion. They're they're more accessible in 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 our in our story. A writer I have read of the same school, you know, there was, there, there's a school of the hard-bitten newspaper man novelist, the one that I know best. I've never read Jim Thompson, but I have read Horace McCoy, you know, No Pockets in a Shroud. Yeah, there's, there's some connection because these guys were Midwestern newspaper men who, who trod, you know, who traveled many of the same roads as Charlie Floyd and George Birdwell. A few more questions I, I would like to ask. Larry McMurtry, this involves your whole career. Um, Thalia, the town of your early novels based on Archer City, at the beginning seems to be kind of very rough-hewn, and you don't seem to have much sympathy for it. As time goes on, the sympathy grows. In that sense, is Salisaw, which has become very sympathetic, is is that uh, kind of the the descendant of, of Thalia in a way? Sure, I, I suppose so. Uh, any small town in the Midwest could be Thalia or could be Salisaw. You know, the reason that they can go there and make movies like the Last Picture Show without changing anything is because emotionally and stylistic, nothing has changed. The movement that I see my fiction having taken, and it's not chronological as the books were published, but it's chronological as the history happened was uh, over the course of my fairly long career, I've considered the American Midwest and the American Southwest from frontier times, from the time of the trail drives, going back all the way through the growth of the small towns and the growth of the great cities. And so I've got country novels, frontier novels, country novels, ranch novels, small town novels, and urban novels. And that seems to me to be natural because I've had the time, I've lived long enough, and I've witnessed in my own lifetime the, the, the movement away from the home place into the small town and then away from the small town into the cities. I've seen the small towns dry up as the best blood was sucked out of them into Houston or Dallas or Los Angeles or, or you know, or St. Louis or, or Kansas City. I just think that's natural. Are we living in better times now, do you think, than we were in the 30s or were better times in the 60s or 70s? Or do you have to go back and say, well, we th- there was something about the frontier? I, I am not uh, a millennialist. I am not a believer in the golden age. I think that all times are hard, each in their own particular way. And, and yet, I also think that all times are good. I I wouldn't have lasted myself on the frontier, I don't think. I'm too luxury-loving. I like, I like the swank hotels and big bathtubs and lots of hot water and, and modern comforts. I don't know. Would you have enjoyed being around the time of the uh, the dime novelists? And would you have written real dime novels, do you think? I wouldn't have enjoyed it, and I doubt I would have been a writer. <laughs> I doubt I would have lived long enough. <laughs> I would have collapsed. We were chatting, that is, uh, Richard Walensky and I were chatting recently with John Gregory Dunn, uh, a, a taping a program for uh, this series. And the subject came up in that discussion of the the archetypal American small town, the sort of Andy Hardy, uh, Mickey Rooney, Judy Garland small town, Dunn suggested that that was itself an invention of fiction. And I find myself contrasting that archetypal small town, which we have been taught to love and to mourn the departure of, with the portrayal of Salisaw and other such places in your works. Which which is the real American small town? Well, I mean, that's a weird question um, because obviously there are real small towns that millions of Americans have grown up with. But once one is written about in a novel, then it's a small town in fiction. And I don't know what to make of it. A small town in fiction is a small town in fiction. That's not to say there aren't real small towns. Now, the the small town can, of course, also be 
romanticized. I mean, in, in, you can say that we just got through writing Diana and I this, this screenplay, the little rough draft screenplay for Father Knows Best. Is that a romantic idol? Is that a realistic picture of domestic life? Right, and we were a little bit troubled by that that thought when we began to write the screenplay because our version, um, you know, it has some real problems with some real dilemmas. And uh, I don't know. I think that uh, people would like to believe that things are wonderful and happy. I, I really, and I think that that's an, a draw for folks in the here and now to go back to the past because the living we all know is hard i mean it's tough life's hard but when you go back and th reflect and think about it in memory even if you weren't there you 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 tend to think of it as better than where you're at right now and it in a way it's very soothing it's a very soothing prospect to think that the past is it was better I never saw Father Knows Best because I didn't have television when it was on. But just in casually mentioning to friends that we've been working on Father Knows Best, we've we've been it's, it's been greeted with horror. I mean, <laughs> because so many people needed that show in a sense as an emotional support. Well, we can contrast the the characters of Bud and Kitten. Uh, on Father Knows Best with what really happened to uh, Billy Gray and Lauren Shaken. In real life. In Absolutely. real life. Yeah, and there, right there, you see the difference between that 50s myth and the reality. Well, and for the ignoramus here in the corner, what really did happen to these two people? Kathy, I think, uh, became a, a drug addict, and her life really deteriorated. She had a very tough time. But gosh, Bud had a fail, several fail, failed marriages, I believe, and, and has had a tough time as well. But they've survived. But I have friends who don't want us to tamper with this. It was useful to them. It was necessary to them almost as a support. Exactly, in, in their because they had lives. terrible, terrible home lives. And when that theme song would come on, their lives, their their day would brighten. They would watch this show and imagine. It would make them hopeful to think that this kind of a life was possible. To have this kind of a family was a possibility. And so it it, it gave them hope. Do you see any connection? between the mythos of the 50s home life and the kind of mythos in books like Lonesome Dove? Or are they so totally different that they're, they're coming at you from completely different universes? Well, you know, that's interesting. Larry watched, finally, six episodes of Father Knows Best. We got them at the house, and he watched them, <laughs> and he laughed hysterically. He thought that they were—in fact, he loved the character of Bud, sort of the hapless <laughs> teenager, you know? Uh, and he thought that, uh, interestingly enough, that the title, Father Knows Best, was ironic. Yeah, I thought it was because usually he didn't know best. <laughs> I see the similarities that I see, and I have to say that although I've seen six episodes of Father Knows Best, I've never seen the six episodes of Lonesome Dove. I haven't seen Lonesome Dove, the miniseries at all. I think that the, the theme that unites them is is the need for family. Now, the cowboys and the Hat Creek outfit became a kind of family and supported one another in a kind of way, and there was the... There was the daddy, Captain Call, and there was, in a way, the mother, Gus, or there was the whore mother, or whatever you want to have. In any case, you had some sort of family here as these guys moved up the trail. There's no doubt that the human animal has a need for a supportive family, for feeling that there's a family there that they can draw on, whether it's in Father Knows Best, whether it's in the Hat Creek Outfit or what. That's the common thing. Well, would, would you say... Uh, I'm, I'm going to ask you a terrible question. I apologize in advance, but if, I'll ask it anyway. Cut and, your throat. And, don't answer. No, no, no. <laughs> well, Lucy can just snip this out of the tape. But, but in view of, of so much that, that I've heard you say today, if the entire corpus of Larry McMurtry's work were to be collapsed into a single word, would that word be family? No. What would it be? <laughs> I have no idea what it would be. Although, you know what? Although you, Larry, you know, you've said this yourself, that you're very interested in the domestic life. I am. I just the thought of collapsing my entire work into one word. <laughs> <laughs> it's horrifying. 
<laughs> all right. Well, oh, that, getting them that all can back hit the down. floor. That one can hit the editing room. <laughs> that, that's no, no, no. Too, I think though. it's a good question. Yeah, leave, it leave is it a in. good Don't question. Don't hit the other and, room. And it's funny when when uh, we, Universal talked to us about doing the movie, they wanted to know why we were interested or why Larry was even interested in this. He said, "You know, you think I'm a Western writer? I've written 17 novels. Four of them have been westerns. The rest have been about the domestic life. Why is this such a surprise?" And yet at the same time, in books like Last Picture Show or films like Falling from Grace or Montana, dysfunction rather than functional families seem to be uh, in the ascendant there. And yet Father Knows Best, at least from my recollection, was a functional family, not dysfunctional. But even in terms of endearment, for example, when Aurora is so strange and she and Emma have this ambivalent relationship, they really love each other and they continue to, to, to have that relationship and that relationship sustains them. And they, that is a family. Whether it's, you know, I think all families, even the father knows the best family, if you really wanted to analyze it, was, was dysfunctional in its own way. Well, there's the famous first sentence of Anna Karenina, happy families are all alike, unhappy families are unhappy each in, in, in their own way. If I had to reduce my work to one word, it would be imagination, I think. It wouldn't be family. I think if one word for Larry's writing, too, he says imagination. I say non-judgmental. You know, you, these are people, flawed though they are, that you love them nonetheless. And that, you know, is so much the story about life. We have a tendency now to, to categorize everybody and say, you have to make yourself well. You know, you must discard all of these, these crutches that, that help you get through life. Um, I find myself drawn to Larry's writing because it's non-judgmental. But I think probably most families from within feel at least partially dysfunctional. They don't feel this is not par this is not a paradise of family solidarity. This is a, a, a world. I mean, a, a family situation filled with tension and doubt, and uh, m moments of terrific happiness and love, and moments of terrific unhappiness and, and discouragement. But is that not the universal human Absolutely. Diana's been reading The Last Picture Show, and I've glanced at it a time or two, and it occurred to me something that I'd totally forgotten, which is that the two main boys within it are fatherless, in essence, fatherless. Sonny's father is is there somewhere, but he's a, he's a small-town drug addict, and, and Duane's father is just not there. He's just not there. So there's no father in that book, except Sam the Lion, the surrogate father. How have you responded uh, internally, I'm, I'm thinking of your own feelings, not your conduct, uh, to your uh, relative uh, uh, fame and success in, uh, in, in American literature versus your, your former self-image. I, I came across in one essay that you used to have a sweatshirt that said, minor regional novelist. You obviously far transcended that. No, I still think of myself as a minor regional novelist. Uh, I think it's very foolish to think of yourself as anything else. You know, while you're alive, that's a judgment for someone else to make centuries from now or 50 years from now or 100 years from now. I don't know. Uh, this literary success in America is a very uh, fragmented moment-to-moment um, -moment thing. It's kind of like athletic success. One year you're good and the next year you're not. We were just we just got our uh, we just got reviewed by the New York Times Book Review this week. The review hit us uh, hit us in the belly while we were up in Seattle trying to gather ourselves for another day of touring. And uh, what measure do you use to judge in the bookstores? The measure that I use that is most sustaining to me is that there are people there who have actually been touched by the books and who enjoy them. Right. The best part of this book tour, in, in fact, the the mainly good part has been. The bookstores and the readers, they're wonderful. And they're the people that really matter. Yeah, it's the readers that, it's the readers that you touch that, you know, most writers, one of, the, one of the good parts about a book tour is that most writers, unlike performers, have no sense of audience response at all. You know, the book doesn't even get published until a year after you've finished it, which is probably a year after you've really finished it emotionally. And it may be years and years and years before you ever get any one little lonely reader coming up to you and saying something nice about the book. So a book tour is inspiriting in that sense, is that you find out that people really do like to read you. And also when you've let go of the book to, to go to the publisher and they publish it and we look at this 
the the entity of the book, the 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 reality of it. In a sense, we ha- we have the feeling, and Larry and I have talked about this too, that it no longer belongs to us. It belongs to Simon and Schuster or the readers. And so, when people come up to us and say, "It's wonderful. It's great. We've enjoyed it." It's such a nice surprise because we've we've let go we've of it. We've let go of it long since. You know, it belongs to us while we're writing it, and then it, and then there is a there is an act of passage. Passing that occurs when you publish a book, it passes from you to the. To it's the a reader, necessary to its thing. It's, it's, it's almost necessary. it's almost like letting go of a child that's that's grown up and gone, you know, ready to to go into life. Do you feel that same way about a, a motion picture? Well, see, that's why I am not possessive about motion pictures made from my works, and don't care that Lonesome Dove has this twenty-one episode series, or that maybe it's good, or there's a bad sequel called Return to Lonesome Dove. It has stopped being mine. Uh, it has stopped being mine in any internal and meaningful way. I'm very happy if good films are made from these books, and good films have been made from my books. But in a way, it just doesn't touch me. You know, I'm I've gone on. I've gone on. Nine books past Lonesome Dove. I can't be, be worrying about it too you much. You know, when you have con- the, the thing, the time to worry is when you have control over it. You don't have you control over control what happens to a, a, a book that you've sold to the movies or even a screenplay that you've written. It's such a collaborative thing. It will continue on and have things added to it mm-hmm. that we have Off no control goes. over. Right. What next for Larry McMurtry? What next for Diana Osana? Uh, I just finished a sequel to The Desert Rose called The Late Child to be published about March or April by Simon & Schuster, and I'm working on, dreadful word, a prequel to Lonesome Dove. And I'm uh, working on my own novel now. It's a novel that starts in the 30s. It's about Italian immigrants and moves forward. And uh, Larry and I are still working collaboratively on screenplays. Lots of screenplays, lots of screenplays, at least four or five that are in various stages of development. While Pretty Boy Floyd was the first collaboration between Larry McMurtry and Diana Osana, it would be far from the last. After writing the novel and working on the miniseries Streets of Laredo, they would again collaborate for two more miniseries, Dead Men's Walk, a prequel to Lonesome Dove, and Comanche Moon, based on Larry McMurtry's novel, along with screenplays for two films. Joe Ball, which was released in 2020 and starred Mark Wahlberg, and in 2005, Brokeback Mountain, which won them both the Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay. The screenplay for Father Knows Best was never produced. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com, And feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.